This morning's scripture is taken from Song of Songs, chapter 5, verses 9 to 16. How is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? How is your beloved better than others that you so charge us? My beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is purest gold. His hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies, dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold, set with topaz. His body is like polished ivory, decorated with lapis lazuli. His legs are pillars of marble, set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This is my friend, daughters of Jerusalem. Way to go, Stephanie. Way to nail that Song of Songs passage. The only thing that would have made that better is if we would have had Trevor standing up here the whole time. So, yeah, this morning's reading comes from the oft-neglected Old Testament book, Song of Songs. It's not too often that we find steamy sensuality and scripture mingled together, which is perhaps why this Old Testament book is forbidden reading for Jewish boys until they make their bar mitzvah. Sex, God, they're connected, writes Rob Bell. And they can't be separated. To make sense of the one, we have to explore the other. Yet despite all of the ways that it nudges itself into our line of sight on a near-daily basis, sex is actually something that we don't talk about a whole lot in church. But we will today. And we will next week, too. Next week, we're going to wade into even deeper waters as we talk about same-sex attraction and Christian faith. You may have noticed in your program that we've called this morning Sex Part 1 and next week Sex Part 3, and you may think that we made a mistake, but we didn't. It's an acknowledgement that there's no possible way that two one-half-hour sermon slots can handle such an important and significant topic. And so, as we'll explain in a little more detail next week, we're going to be providing opportunities in the weeks and months to come to have intentional, focused dialogue around this important theme. So I'll give you a little bit of a warning. You may be a little uncomfortable this morning. You definitely will be a little uncomfortable next week. Dennis Hollinger, in his book, The Meaning of Sex, says the basic issue that the Western world is currently struggling with comes down to this. Do we human beings create the meaning and purpose of sex, or do we discover the meaning and purpose of sex? Is there a design for sex given to us by God, Or do we just make it up as we go? Well, I believe that sex was intended to be, in the words of the Russian novelist Dostoevsky, the crown of true love, an expression of physical and emotional intimacy within the covenant of marriage. But the story that we hear in our day is something quite different than that. Now, before we dive into this...
The church has a reputation for being judgmental and making people feel guilty and, sh- and shamed. So I want to make this clear. Christianity is not about your past. It's not about what's happened in your life up until today. It's about what happens from today moving forward. And so some of the things I'm, I'm going to say this morning will make you feel uncomfortable. They may make you feel angry. And I just want to ask you to, to listen to the entire context and understand that it's in a context of grace and hopefulness that we talk about any of this this morning. There's no denying that we live in a very sexually charged culture. Whether you're listening to the radio, watching something on Netflix, or doing just about anything online, you're bound to walk right into the captivating story that our culture tells about sex. It's a story that ever so subtly mixes things like beauty, romance, and love with things like money, acceptance, and pleasure. It's a story that taps into genuine physical needs that most all humans have and ends up robbing and enslaving us instead of satisfying and empowering us. And it's a story that's really easy to embrace at the start. It's like this cartoon here of these two plugs who meet at the bar. Let's cut the games. We both know why we're here. I mean, it's just that obvious. If two people have the same wants and needs, well, it just makes sense, right? The only generally accepted boundaries to sexual activity in our culture would be those that overstep an individual's freedom. As long as everyone's on board, you're good to go. But in light of the Me Too movement, even this is becoming a foggy area. Actor, writer, and producer Britt Marling recently wrote about the economies of consent, claiming that women who are preyed upon by men such as Harvey Weinstein exist in a gray zone, where words like consent cannot fully capture the complexity of the encounter. Consent, Ms. Marling argues, is a function of power. You have to have a modicum of power to give it. When your very livelihood depends on saying yes to something you don't want, how much of a choice do you really have? And so if you have enough power, the boundaries can be pushed even further out. Fortunately, women are doing a good job reestablishing at least those boundaries. But it's a reminder of how easily a wonderful gift can be demented and destroyed. Our culture's story of sexual intimacy is almost entirely divorced from commitment. I had a conversation maybe a year and a half ago uh, at a birthday party with a total stranger. I had never talked to this person before. And I, I actually don't remember how it came up, but I remember at one point he said, it's crazy to marry someone without living with them first. You need to test out the relationship. I didn't respond by letting him know that I didn't actually live with my wife before we got married. I didn't mention that I was a pastor either. I thought that would just really up the ante there. But this idea that it is just crazy. Any notion of saving sexual intimacy for a commitment that deserves it is foolishness. And so breaking from a long history of relationship patterns in North America, actually most couples today, at least two-thirds, live together before getting married. Proof enough that Christianity is clearly out of touch with the times, which is why Philip Yancey can write, unfortunately, few people look to the church for perspective on the true meaning of human sexuality, since they view the church as an implacable enemy of sex. And so the search for sexual fulfillment marches on. Now, if our sexual desires are merely biological, with no moral constraints, then it makes perfect sense to meet the need however we can with whomever we can. Dr. Larry Crabb, in his famous book, The Marriage Builder, writes, if we regard ourselves merely as bodies, and if we therefore want more than anything else to find some way to feel physically good, well, then sex is the ticket. 
and the pursuit of sexual pleasure can become a strong preoccupation. The problem is that since actual sex can't just be had whenever a person feels like it, people need to find other ways of becoming satisfied. And nowhere offers more substitutes for actual sex than the internet. A memo from the U.S. Department of Justice reads, Never before in the history of telecommunications media has so much indecent and obscene material been so easily accessible by so many minors in so many homes with so few restrictions. The largest consumer group for internet pornography is children between the ages of 12 and 17, with four out of five 16-year-olds regularly accessing porn online. And so for our kids and teenagers, the first encounter with members of the opposite sex in any kind of a sexual way has moved from the awkward situation of a school dance to viewing violent and degrading images primarily of women. This is where we start learning about sex today. But it gets worse. Far beyond viewing, kids are now being invited to participate in pornography. These stats are crazy, but you could cut them in half and they would be every much bit as shocking. A study from the UK says that one in three children send some kind of naked selfie online. One in three. So this is no longer about just viewing degraded sexuality. This is now about participating. 78% of images and videos analyzed by cyber.ca depict children under 12 years old. This is crazy town. And I was thinking about this. I was like, I can't just talk about it and then say, good luck, Like, there's got to be something we can do. And I thought about um, a product that was actually developed locally. And so this is going to seem like a shameless plug, but I think it's really for our benefit. So um, there's a company locally, and actually one of the founders of this product is a part of our community here. And some of you may have heard of Kids Wi-Fi. And basically what this is, is it's kind of like a device for dummies that you plug into your house and it interacts with your wireless system in your house to help provide safety and security. It allows you to monitor your kids' devices. It allows you to filter a lot, almost all explicit content. It's a, it's a, it's a fantastic thing. And I was thinking about it. Actually, Friday uh, afternoon, I was working on my sermon. I'm like, I got I to gotta get these things for our church. We got to find a way to do this. So um, what we're going to do is... Uh, I have a couple samples out uh, in the lobby, and you can take a look. And actually, next Sunday, um, John, who's a member of our community here, he's going to be here, and he's going to answer questions about it. And we're going to basically try to put, like, a bulk order in. And, um, and I had this idea that we shouldn't make, like, cost. It's only 100 bucks, but we shouldn't make cost a barrier. So basically, if you want one of these for your homes, just sign up and then pay whatever you can, and we'll find a way to cover the rest of the cost. Because I was thinking, what if we could like, just make a commitment as a church community to create safe spaces for our kids in our homes. What if we just started now, and hopefully we can avoid at least some of this during these early formative years of their lives? So over the next couple of weeks, we'll give an opportunity, and then we'll, we'll find a way. This is at least one practical way that we can respond to these harrowing stats. You see, what is now considered normal is an entirely distorted view of sexuality and the ways that relationships should be conducted. Yancey writes that sex has enough combustive force to incinerate conscience, vows, family commitments, religious devotion, and anything else in its path. Pornography 
is the ultimate example of fake news. It tells us something that is not true. And unfortunately, a lot of times we believe it. Again, Dr. Larry Crabb writes, the compulsive craving for erotic excitement prevalent in our society is rooted in our denial of ourselves as real persons made for personal fellowship with God and others. And therein lies a little bit of hope for us. And so I want to turn to a passage from Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 6. It's Jesus in dialogue with the Pharisees, his favorite sparring partners. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of his time. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. In addressing the challenges of breaking up a marriage covenant, Jesus reaches all the way back to the creation narrative at the beginning. And if we go back to Genesis 1 ourselves, in verse 27 and 28, we read, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Thomas Merton writes, properly understood, sexual union is an expression of deep personal love and a means to the deepening, perfecting, and sanctifying of that love. As I've been thinking about this theme, I've realized That sexuality within the context of a marriage may be the thing that's talked about least of all in church, actually. We can talk about the dangers of this and what to avoid and this, that, and the other thing. And I was thinking, well, what are the reasons? There are some actually really good reasons we don't talk about this a whole lot. One is the desire to be sensitive to those uh, in our community, the many people in our community who are single, who aren't married. And so to spend too much time talking about it, you know, excludes a member, a significant portion of our community. We also want to be sensitive to those who have experienced marriage in a very negative way, whose marriages have ended in divorce or or are in the process of that now. Um, Reasons uh, because a a number of people in our community will experience some kind of sexual dysfunction within the context of a marriage relationship. And so talking about it can be uh, sensitive in that way as well. I think maybe the the most significant reason we don't talk about uh, marital sex that often in church is that it's awkward. I think that's really the, the primary reason, let's be honest. I remember doing a, a marriage prep session uh, with a couple once, and we started talking about sex, and I was like, are you okay with this? And the response was, oh, well, it's pretty awkward to talk with our pastor about this. And I was like, okay, fine, I'll give you that. I mean, I've had this conversation with 75 couples, but um, I understand this is the first time you're having it. So it is awkward, I understand, absolutely. And so part of the thing that awkwardness does is it, pushes us to maybe create some kind of a a gap between sexuality and faith. As far back as the fourth century, St. Jerome, who admittedly had intense struggles with lust, tried to put a damper on even marital sexuality by claiming, anyone who is too passionate a lover with his own wife is himself an adulterer. Come on! Really? That's not fair. And down on through the ages, there has been this ongoing struggle with the inclusion of Song of Songs in Scripture. Why is this book that doesn't even mention God, that is all about this like erotic imagery between a man and a woman, why is this in the Bible? This is ridiculous. I had to choose the passage carefully. 
I wanted, to, I wanted to give you a little taste, but there's a lot of taste in that book. And I was like, I, I'm not willing to put Stephanie through any more than I already did put her through. Let's give you a couple little tastes here. Uh, Song 1, verse 12 to 13. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My lover is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. Song 4, verse 16. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind, blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. So you, you see, like, like it's crazy, and, and there's way more than that. What is this doing in the Bible? Come on. Who made that decision? The struggle with its inclusion is in no small part to do with our struggle to reconcile our often distorted view of sexuality with something that God blessed his creation with. But the first commentary on marital sex was not made by some contemporary sex therapist or even during the sexual revolution by some free love flower child, but it was made at the beginning by God, who was the first to encourage his creation to be fruitful the last week I talked about some of Jesus' final words. He brought his followers up onto the mountain and he, and he says, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teach them to follow. And I talked about how those final words, they resonate with us. We're like, someone, if someone's gonna say their last words and they know they're their last words, they're gonna make them count. And I thought, well, someone's first words are gonna count too. Do you know what the first word, the first words that God spoke to humanity were? Be fruitful. Now, there are ways today that you can be fruitful um, that don't involve sex. I mean, adoption would be an option, you know, even medical process like in vitro. Um, but for Adam and Eve, there was one way to be fruitful. So the first thing that God said to his creation was have sex. And so if you want to take this you know, story really literally, we can just imagine Adam and Eve standing there, stark naked in the garden, and God's watching them, and they're looking at each other, and they're like, all right, noticing some differences here, a little bit of an attraction going on. And God's like, okay, guys, you got to move a little closer. Got to move a little closer and then just kind of figure it out here, all right? The first thing he says. So why do we have this kind of idea that sexuality is somehow disconnected from faith when the very first thing that God says to his creation is be fruitful? If a 14th century priest fought to suppress sexuality, I'd like to take a listen to the writing of a 20th century priest who thought it was something deserving of celebration. This is from Thomas Merton. The act of sexual love should by its very nature be joyous, unconstrained, alive, leisurely, inventive, and full of a special delight which the lovers have learned by experience to create for one another. There is no more beautiful gift of God than the little secret world of created love and expression in which two persons who have totally surrendered to each other manifest and celebrate their mutual gift. It is precisely in this spirit of celebration, gratitude, and joy that true purity is to be found. The pure heart is not one that is terrified of Eros, but one that with the confidence and abandon of a child of God accepts this gift as a sacred trust. For sex, too, is one of the talents which Christ has left us to trade with until he returns. Now, if that's not good news, I don't know what is. And that from a celibate man, a monk. My goodness, thank you very much, Thomas Merton. In Genesis 2, we catch the faintest glimpse 
of a world of sexual innocence. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Hard for us to imagine having no shame around sexuality. I remember a story when I was in uh, probably in middle school and attending a summer camp. Uh, one of our counselors told this story about this particular council. He was like the alpha male of the whole camp. And one particular day, he decided to go for a skinny dip. And so he left his clothes on the beach, and, and one of his buddies grabbed his clothes and took off with them and went up to the mess hall and got all the rest of the counselors to come down. And they all stood on the shore, and they're like, ha ha, what are you going to do now? And the guy just stood up and walked out of the water. The cold water. I mean, the confidence. Like, anyways, the confidence. But shame for the rest of us the, who aren't that guy, like, it is so attached to our sexuality. But Dennis Hollinger writes that the starting point for the Christian meaning of sex and a sexual ethic is to affirm the intrinsic goodness of the human body, human sexuality, and the gift of sex. It's a good thing. It comes from God. We don't need to be ashamed. But as the story goes, Adam and Eve reached for something outside of what God had intended for them, the forbidden fruit, and in doing so, abandoned his vision for their lives. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, we read, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. It was this reaching out beyond the boundaries of God's design that led to the first distortion of humanity's sexuality. Sex is something to be ashamed of. Within a Christian marriage, a husband and wife honor both God and one another by their exclusive one flesh commitment, tapping into the intimacy generating purposes, which were a key part of what God designed sex for in the first place. And they need to, because marriage is by no means the end of the struggle. I think when couples first begin married life, you think, okay, well, if I'm trying to follow this Christian ethic of, of sex within the context of marriage, then, then sex, marriage will solve all of that because then I won't have any more temptations and, and it'll just be all free and easy. But anyone who, who experiences uh, married life knows that there are actually a, a lot of barriers that come in, a lot of challenges even to a sexual relationship even within the context of marriage unbalanced needs. It may surprise you to know that not every husband and wife have exactly the same sexual needs. Infidelity, whether through pornography or whether through actual relationships, emotional or physical, where that bond of trust is broken or at least stretched to its limits. Sexual dysfunction, something that that no one who waits for marriage imagines would ever be on the other side of their wedding night that things don't work the way you hope they would work, that infertility would actually get in the way of fulfilling this divine command to be fruitful and multiply. And so even marital sex has its challenges, plenty of them, and they can only be faced by applying the dual remedy of commitment and communication a drawing on that deep commitment of lifelong love and relationship. Remembering that when you stood at that altar, when you pledged those vows, it was through everything that life is going to throw at you. That's what this commitment is about. And it's in that context that we can deal with even the messed up and distorted sexuality that we find in a marriage relationship. In communication with one another, 
It's awkward even for husbands and wives to talk about their sexual relationship, but we have to. And we actually have to find ways to talk to people outside of our marriage relationship. That's an even greater challenge, to to be willing to say, we actually need to talk to a friend, or we need to talk to a counselor. We need to talk to someone and help us work through these challenges, these things that are threatening this bond, this union that we've made. Well, I'll be the first to admit that Christianity has dropped the ball when it comes to expressing God's vision for a sexuality that reflects our dignity as humans created in his image. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't pick up the ball and keep trying. In the words of one kind of random blogger, uh, she writes, I wish the church would take back sex. We've given sex to the world and allowed it to tell us what sex is and how it works. We need to reclaim sex as what it is, a gift from God. So Jesus points out the union between our first ancestors made them one flesh. That was his response to this idea of of divorce for any and every reason. Now, of course, we wouldn't want to be joined quite so permanently to just anyone. I mean, one flesh, it has this idea of like one, a single organism, two organisms become one, and, and we don't really want that to happen with just anyone. It's like, you know, those offers. It's like, you know, to get a free $20 gift card, just sign our email list. And you know, it's not really free. You know, like they, were, they will pester you for the rest of your life. And I was talking to someone who told me that they actually created a, a separate email address just for these kinds of promotions. And so every time they want to get a free gift or they want to sign up for a bonus, whatever, they use that email address. So then they never see it in their daily inbox, but they still get the gift card. That's a great idea. But you can't make a separate you to get sex. You have to use the real you. And so the effects of seeking that kind of satisfaction, they apply to our real lives. So if sexual intimacy is intended to create a permanent bond between husband and wife, then what are we supposed to do with the desires we're charged with in the meantime? Well, this is where it gets really crazy. It's a Christian virtue known as chastity, which means not having any sexual relations before marriage and being faithful to your husband or wife during marriage. And it's that first part that makes chastity, in the words of C.S. Lewis, the most unpopular of Christian virtues. Who wants to do that? Well, it's always been a challenge. There's nothing new to our day. If we read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, um, chapter 6, verse 18 to 20, flee from sexual immorality, he writes. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, independence is a significant part of how we think about ourselves. And that certainly applies to our bodies. They're ours to do with as we please. That was the kind of the starting point this morning. So how are we supposed to process this language in Scripture about belonging to God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. That flies in the face of, of our independence and individuality. But guess what? It flew in the face of the Corinthians' independence and individuality as well. A few verses earlier, Paul quotes kind of a saying among them, everything is permissible for me. And he responds, but not everything is beneficial. He quotes another saying, everything is permissible for me, and responds again, but I will not be mastered by anything. Another saying, food for the stomach, stomach for food, it's just a body. But God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. There's a vision for sex that goes beyond just 
food for the stomach, stomach for food, everything's permissible. There's something significant that God is trying to do. Sexual intimacy outside the covenant of marriage is something God calls his people to abstain from and that it dishonors the sacredness of our sexuality. The message translates this passage this way. There's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. We must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever, the kind of sex that can never become one. That can be a very real struggle to negotiate the reality of one's sexual feelings and desires with the Bible's teachings on sexuality. And, and that's why for so many people it's just set aside and discarded. It's not worth wrestling because the gap just seems far too big. It's not always as easy as it seems. In fact, it's just plain and simply not easy at all. So how do we live in a way that reflects the way that we were created to live? James Brownson writes about celibacy, this commitment to um, to to abstaining from sexuality outside of marriage. He says that celibacy means more than simply going without sexual relations for a period of time. He says it entails constructing one's whole life apart from sexual intimacy. You see, if we just look at it as this is just a sexual thing, well, then it becomes impossible. But if we look at it as like, no, actually, this is about rethinking the entire way that we live our lives. I want to read a couple of excerpts from um, an article by Richard B. Hayes called The Demythologizing of Sex. He says, the Bible undercuts our cultural obsession with sexual fulfillment. Scripture, along with many subsequent generations of faithful Christians, bears witness that lives of freedom, joy, and service are possible without sexual relations. Indeed, however odd it may seem to contemporary sensibilities, some New Testament passages clearly commend the celibate life as a way of faithfulness. In the view of the world that emerges from the pages of Scripture, sex appears as a matter of secondary importance. The love of God is far more important than any human love. Sexual fulfillment finds its place at best as a subsidiary good within this larger picture. Now, as someone who's been married for 20 years, I have to acknowledge the difficulty I have in speaking with any recent experience to the challenge of living a single life. And so I may be removed from it, but certainly many members of our church community are not. There are many people who we can engage in conversation and learn from, learn from their own experiences, past or present. Jamie Smith writes that virtues are thick realities tethered to particular communities governed by a particular story. And so this, this virtue of chastity, it doesn't just stand out there on its own, deal with it. No, it's embedded in the life of a community. It's tied to this greater picture of who God has created us to be and, and how he continues to work in our lives by the presence of his spirit. And the fact that the church has done a crap job of coming around and supporting those who are not married by choice or otherwise should be a wake-up call for all of us, that we've got to do something to create a better environment for people to live out the virtues that God calls us to. Nick Rowan writes that we all have a deep, deep need for love. And that love is just as legitimately available within celibacy as it is in sexual expression. In our hyper-sexualized culture, that message will turn some heads. But as Paul wrote earlier in his letter to the Corinthians, the foolishness of God is wiser than any human wisdom. Back to Richard B. Hayes. Despite the smooth illusions perpetrated by mass culture in the United States, sexual gratification is not a sacred right, and celibacy is not a fate worse than death. Surely it is a matter of some interest for Christian ethics that both Jesus and Paul 
lived without sexual relationships. Within the church, we should work diligently to recover the dignity and value of the single life. There's a lot to talk about in these themes, and I'm going to head towards the finish line here uh, by quoting the words of Jesus in John 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I think when we look at Christianity's view of sexuality from the outside, it's easy to say, well, they're just trying to steal joy or steal, you know, whatever else. But Jesus said quite the opposite, that it's the thief that comes to steal and destroy. But actually, what I have come to do is to bring life and life in its fullest. Frederick Buechner writes, the only freedom love denies us is the freedom to destroy ourselves. And so this is an invitation to live life with God at the center, allowing him to define not only our sexuality, but every aspect of our lives. I'll close with a thought that uh, I read in a, a book, Eugene Peterson's latest book. It's a series of sermons that he preached, and I've been reading it uh, over the last little while. And there was a, a reading a, a while ago on a sermon he preached on the Song of Songs. And he talks about how uh, in the history of the Jewish people, there are so many traditions and rituals that they have to commemorate what God has done in their lives. One of the most significant, of course, would be the Passover feast. And the feast of the Passover is an annual celebration where they gather around together and they share a meal and they remember that God had passed over them in his judgment of Egypt and that God led the, the, the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt into freedom, into a promised land and new life. And they gather around the table and they remember this, that God has saved us, that God has truly brought us to this new place. And, and when we gather week in and week out here as a church community, you know, we try to remember that same story. It's in stained glass all around us here. We remember that God has done something good. But Peterson says, you know, the problem with that, the problem with ritual, the problem with habit, the problem with these spiritual practices is that they can become rote. And at some point, maybe the Jewish people would have just kind of gone through the motions of this Passover meal without truly understanding how significant this salvation was, not only for their ancestors, but for them in that day and in that moment. And so he says, in order to protect against this danger, a person of genius, no no one knows who it was, assigned the song of songs to be read after the eating of the ritual meal. This assignment, reading the song as the concluding act of the Passover feast, is a witness to and participation in the message that the once-for-all historic event of salvation is at the same time workable in the everyday settings of intimacy between persons. It bridges the transition from the Exodus event in Egypt to daily activities in the kitchen and the bedroom, so there is no loss of wonder, intensity, or joy. Imagine finishing a meal by reading this Song of Songs. They did it to remind us that the way that God came into this world to give us life to its fullest, to save us from the oppression and destruction of sin, is tied intimately into the details of eating and sexuality. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'll pray as we wrap up this portion of our time together and head into the gym for some double jalapeno discussion questions this morning. We're going to talk about this. 
So if it's been awkward for me for 30 minutes, it's going to be awkward for you for 30 minutes. God, I am grateful that, that we can find in this sacred book of ours so much hope in the midst of a world of brokenness in the realm of sexuality. God, I am grateful that we don't just talk about these things and ideas and concepts that aren't connected to our everyday lives, but that actually you address us where we're at and you call us to to invite your spirit to give us the strength and the courage to live out the way that we were created to live, each and every one of us. God, I pray that around our tables you would bless our conversation, that you would use us to encourage and inspire one another. And I pray that as these words, some of them may be very difficult to hear, some of them confusing and challenging as they rattle around in our brains over the course of the day and through the week, I ask that you would remind us that these things, this everyday life, it matters. And this this everyday life that you've called us to live in your presence. So go with us today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.